service. Sunday mornings we're looking at the ministry and the life in the ministry of Jesus in chronological order. And we come now to the first 17 verses of John chapter 13. Verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And supper being ended, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray Jesus, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper, laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. And after that he poured water into a basin and he began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. And then he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? And Jesus answered and said to him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. Peter, not content to take Jesus' counsel, said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you, for he knew who would betray him. Therefore he said, You are not all clean, referring to Judas. And so when he had washed their feet, taken his garments and sat down, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. And most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who has sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would bring the greatness of your wisdom and your power and your love to rest upon that entire country of Haiti. We pray specifically for Port-au-Prince. And we ask, Lord, that you would direct government officials, that you would direct rescue workers, medical professionals, every single person, Lord, that is there attempting to help their fellow man. And we pray that you would bring the supernatural and add it to all of their efforts. We pray, Lord, for the Haitian people. And we pray, Lord, for those that have been injured. We pray for those that are still trapped and caught in all the circumstances that they find themselves in. And we ask, Lord, that you would bring the greatness of your grace and your mercy to bear upon that situation, that you would be in their lives what you alone can be. And we know, Lord, that you can bring beauty out of ashes. You can turn anything around and work it together for good. And we pray, Lord, that all that is happening there right now in this fallen world, that somehow you would use it to bring a great, powerful, far-reaching 
work of your Holy Spirit and revival to the people of that island. Bless, Lord. Do all that is in your heart and you know that needs to be done there. And we pray for our hearts this morning as we turn to your word and we ask that you would meet with us in this room. We acknowledge that your word is going to outlive the heavens and the earth and we want you to know we are grateful to be able to build our lives and our eternities on something so sure. And so, Lord, we pray that you would speak to us very personally and very individually from your word this morning. Help us to hear your heart. Help us to hear your voice. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. As we enter into this section of the life and the ministry of Jesus, John's Gospel, chapters 13 through 17, we are entering into one of the most beloved and rich sections of Scripture to be found in all of the Bible. It is a record of Jesus' final night with his disciples immediately before his death upon the cross and all that was associated with it the following day. He is alone with his disciples in an upper room and this entire section of Scripture, though part of it is spoken in an upper room and part of it occurs apart from that upper room, but that entire section is known as the upper room discourse. It's named after the location of Jesus' teaching to the disciples. No more crowds. No more public ministry. No more scribes. No more Pharisees. No more of the Sadducees. No more traps. No more attempting to trip him up in his teaching. No more public ministry at all. From this point in time, all of Jesus' focus and attention is upon these disciples, these twelve that have been with him for all of these three and a half years. In verse 1, we're given the mental and the emotional condition of Jesus on that night. Mentally, we're told that his hour had come. That, spoke, that speaks all the way through the Gospels of his coming crucifixion, his death upon the cross, in order to provide us with the forgiveness of sins. And mentally, Jesus' whole mind is dominated by that cross. It's just a few hours away in his life now. All that is going to be involved, not only in dying upon the cross, but all of the events that occurred prior to it happening, all of the horrible things, that, all of the monstrous things that are going to be done to him that are going to be overwhelmed by God and worked for man's good. But he's dominated by the cross in his thinking. Imagine how it weighed upon his mind. And in his heart, emotionally, he's completely dominated, we're told, by a desire to love and to care for his disciples all the way to the end. And as we read in this section, it's, he, the whole thing is dominated and motivated by Jesus' great love for his disciples. Everything that he's going to say, everything that he's going to do, is out of the greatness of his love for his disciples both then and now. Now typically, and I would count myself in that number, but typically when a person is facing death, 
when they know that death is just a matter of days or even hours away, they typically want two things if it can be arranged. Number one, they want to be around the people that they love most in life. And they want those people to be around them. That's who you want to surround yourself with in those final hours. And then number two, typically such a person will then want to share those things with these loved ones that are most important to them. And that's what John chapter 13 through verse 17 is. That's the dynamic of it. That's the urgency of it. That's what's going on in Jesus' heart and in Jesus' mind. It's His farewell address. I think it's very important to understand that there's another dynamic operating in that upper room other than what's going on in Jesus' heart and in His mind. A very unhealthy dynamic. A tension that is in that room that threatened to completely spoil this final evening of Jesus with His disciples. Because in Luke's Gospel, chapter 22, verse 24, we're told that the disciples had once again revived this old discussion over, uh, between one another over which one of them was the greatest. The condition of Jesus' mind, the condition of Jesus' heart. He's told all of the disciples that this is what's coming. They still don't get it. They think that ultimately all of this is going to end with Him marching into Jerusalem and He's going to be recognized as the King of the Jews and establish His kingdom 2,000 years ago. They still don't, are not taking Him seriously on this. And so they figure, they knew something's in the air. They knew something dramatic was going to happen. They thought he would establish the kingdom. And so they began to compete with one another for who would have the position of the Grand Poobah. For those of you who used to watch the Flintstones. Luke's Gospel puts it this way. For there was also a dispute among them as to which of them should be considered the greatest. The word dispute there, it means a dispute, it means a quarrel. We're not talking about 12 grown men sitting down in a corner and having a dispassionate, rational discussion whereby each one lays out their reasons for why they ought to be considered the greatest. That's not what's happening there. They were out loud, voice raised arguing with one another over who was going to be the greatest. And as a result of it, they are completely out of touch with their Savior, completely out of touch with His heart, His mind. And you imagine, I mean, they think about that whole evening now, that final evening. I mean, their carnality threatens to rob us of all of this red ink in our Bibles between chapters 13 through 17. They won't understand a single thing that he's saying or care about it because of this argument that they've carried into the room. You think about how discouraging this might have been to Jesus. I mean, after three and a half years, these guys still don't get it. And how Satan could come to him and whisper to him that these three and a half years, they've meant nothing concerning the lives of these twelve. He could say, Look at all the good it's done there. No different than me when I fell. Selfish, 
and ambitious and proud. And so Jesus proceeded to address all of this conflict between them in two ways. First, by giving them an example of what greatness looks like in his servants and in the kingdom of God. And then second, by verbally applying his actions to their lives. The fact that Jesus would lay aside the weight of the cross and his mental thinking, that he would lay aside all that was on his heart of love, all the content of these several chapters that he desperately wanted to speak into their hearts. The fact that he would take all of that and place it over here on a back burner in order to address this issue of servanthood and greatness speaks to us of how important this subject is to him. Everything else could wait until this got taken care of. And whatever is important to our Savior is important to us. Notice Jesus' actions in verses 2 through verse 12. You picture the disciples in that upper room. They're sitting at a table. They've just had a meal. Don't think about the Last Supper, Michelangelo's painting, where they're sitting at this very European, very Italian table and chairs. All of them seated on one side. In the Middle East in those days, they didn't have tables like that. I, I love museums. I'll go to anyone, anywhere I am to go and see them. And I love the artists that attempt to capture biblical scenes. That's my favorite part of museums. So I'm not putting it down. But a lot of these European artists, they painted without a knowledge of the Middle East or a knowledge of... Uh, the culture, they had never been there or even tried to immerse themselves in books to, to understand it. I, one of my favorite paintings that I've ever seen uh, that kind of speaks about how uh, a painting can be uh, wrongly dominated by the culture of the painter and have nothing to do with the Middle East was a painting that I saw of David. And I believe he was heading out to fight Goliath. And he had a little felt hat on. He looked like Robin Hood. Little felt hat on, gigantic plume of a f feather coming out of his head. He had little knickers and leotards on. And he had those little shoes like the Shriners wear that come up around and they go in kind of a circle. And that's what, that's what they... Of course, ever, David dressed like European person of that day. The disciples in that upper room were sitting around a table that was known as a triclinium. It's a very, very low table. It's like this. You go to the beach. If you ever go to a beach and you don't bring a chair and you've got a, a towel or something and you want to talk to somebody that's on your side there, you put an elbow into the sand like this and you put your legs out this way and uh, you grab the food and stuff with your right hand and you kind of talk this way. That's what they did all the way around the table, the triclinium, a U-shaped table. And so they're not sitting in chairs. they got their left arm right up against the table. They're partaking of the food. Their feet are stretched out on the floor. That's, that's the position that they're in. Every one of them has dirty feet. 
Now in those days, when you would come into another person's home, they would immediately wash your feet. Because it's warm in the Middle East. So your feet get sweaty on a journey. The paths are, uh, there's not the asphalt roads that we have or the concrete sidewalks. I remember one time being on a train in India on an overnight. There were two members of parliament, well, was one member of parliament and his aide were sharing the overnight car that we were in. And they were grilling us about what we were over there doing. We're just trying to preach to every Indian we can find. You know, you can't, couldn't tell him because he's Hindu and, and powerful. So you share the gospel with him and you leave the big picture alone. You get people in trouble. He had been to the United States one time. Couldn't wait to tell us about it. Do you know what he brought up? He didn't bring up a bridge, a great building. He didn't bring up the museums. He didn't bring up any of that kind of stuff. He'd been to Pennsylvania. And what impacted him the most was sidewalks that you could walk all day long and return home and not have to clean off your shoes. He was a... I hadn't, I've never thought of sidewalks the same since, and I hope you don't either. But in that culture, you're going to walk on dirt paths, and your feet get sweaty, and the dirt clings to them. And so, as an act of hospitality, when you came in, your feet would be washed to refresh you. It would always be done by a slave, and not just any slave. The washing of people's feet was delegated to the lowest slave. Now in the King James, New King James we talk about servants and, and I think in the Old King James it uses the word slave a lot more. We're talking about slaves. So when we think about servants we don't want to be thinking about some uh, BBC period piece where the maid and the butler finish their day and they have a life of their own independent of their master's house. These slaves have no right at all. This is, they live to do what it is that they do. But it was not only a slave's work, but it was the position of the lowest slave to do this kind of work. And if a family did not have a slave, then that, this was delegated to the, position with the, the person with the lowest position of authority and power within the, the, the family. It was... This foot washing was never, ever, ever performed by a cultural superior toward the inferior in terms of the standing in society. It just never happened. When Jesus made the arrangements for the use of this upper room, he requested a towel, he requested a basin for water, because they're present in the room. But he did not ask that a servant be provided for the foot washing. And the reason he didn't is because he was supposed to already have 12 servants who would have been eager to wash his feet and the feet of all of the other disciples. So the towel sitting there the basin is sitting there, but none of the twelve is going to wash the other's feet. Because if they'd have done it, they'd have lost their argument. 
It would have been an admission that they were not the greatest among the twelve, but that they were the lowest among the twelve, and each one of them considers themselves to be the greatest. So it's obvious this argument has carried over into the room and is about to spoil the entire evening. And it's an attitude that will destroy a church, by the way. They'd rather recline with unwashed feet than to wash the other disciples' feet. So how does Jesus deal with this? Verses 4 and 5. Doesn't say a word. Does seven very deliberate things. We're told he rose from the supper, laid aside his outer robe, took a towel, he girded himself with it, he wrapped it around his waist, he poured water into the basin. Now you're watching all this, right? He began then to go from one disciple to the other, washing their feet, and then before he'd leave that disciple's feet, he would then dry them with a towel that was around his waist. It's very intimate. It's very close. It's very personal. It's very gentle, this thing called foot washing. And as each of the twelve watched all of this, it seems that Jesus' actions really produced a deep conviction in them. I mean, here is Jesus. They knew him to be the Messiah. They knew him to even be the Son of God. Doing what each of them knew they should have done for the others, but weren't willing to humble themselves to do. I don't know if you've ever had that kind of sinking feeling that you get when someone far more important than you someone of far greater accomplishment, far greater reputation, walks into the room that you're in and then proceeds to do something that you were unwilling to do. And they don't think twice about it. They walk in and, 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 and start to do that, humble themselves to do it. And I'll tell you, it really humbles you when you see it. It convicts you and makes you just feel so small and so petty. They're all very uncomfortable with what's going on. And I think to a man, they're doubtless thinking, this isn't right. This isn't right. This isn't right. He shouldn't be doing this. this. Why in the world is he doing this? But that's not the real question. The real question they should have been asking is, why weren't any of us willing to do that? How could have we thought that that was below us, but Jesus didn't consider it below him? Now we know the scene is very disturbing, at least to Peter. And I think that Peter just speaks for all of them here. When Peter watched what Jesus does, how low he is willing to go in the service of his people, he is mightily troubled by it. He is very disturbed by what it is that he is uh, witnessing here. And he is not only disturbed, but he protests all of this mightily. You notice the strength of Peter's refusal. How horrified he is by this in verses 6 and 8. He says in verse 6, Lord, are you washing my feet? Then he gets stronger yet. He's, he's working himself up. This is so big inside of him. He says in verse 8, you shall never wash my feet. As long as I live, I will not allow the Messiah, the Son of God, to wash my feet. Now what's the old saying? Never say never. Why? 
Because if you're anything like Peter, you're going to change your never in about 30 seconds, which is exactly what he ends up doing. It's interesting to note that even though Peter wanted Jesus to stop, he wasn't willing to change places with Jesus. He wasn't willing to say, listen, I get this. I, I am so embarrassed by what's happening here. Give me the towel and give me the basin and I will gladly wash the feet of the remaining disciples on your behalf. He wasn't willing to do that. Now Jesus rebukes Peter in verses 7 through 10 and in verse 7 he essentially answers Peter's protest by telling Peter, Peter you don't fully understand what's happening here and I know it's difficult for you to lay low but it would really be good for you to lay low not say anything just watch what happens this is all going to click for you in just a minute or two it's a very wordy and liberal translation of verse 7 so it's a ni just a nice way of saying be quiet and uh, don't interrupt in verse 8 essentially he tells Peter if you don't let me do this you'll never wash my feet if you don't let me do this it will create a break in our relationship. It will create a break in, in our communion with one another. So Peter, this never-say-never never guy, man of extremes, says, Lord, let me have all of the cleansing that I can. So one moment he's telling Jesus what he can't do, and then the next thing he's telling him what he ought to do. Then notice in verse 10, Jesus said, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you, speaking of Judas. Later on, the meaning of what Jesus is saying in verse 10 is going to be very clear following his death upon the cross, which provided a spiritual cleansing for all of mankind. Paul wrote to Titus, using this whole washing kind of imagery, in Titus chapter 3, and he said, But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us, through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Lord, that having been justified by His grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. When we are born again and we receive God's forgiveness of our sins and we receive His salvation, that's like taking a spiritual bath. That occurs just one time. That's something that is already given. But in our Christian life, even though we are born again, in a spiritual sense, what happens physically in the world to these sandal wearers happens to us. Where we've been born again, our life has been changed, we've been washed, we've been bathed, we've been cleansed, but we walk in this world that's a sinful place. It's a dirty place. And we walk in it every day. And as we walk in it, there can be that tendency for something of the filth of the world to then attach itself to our bodies, to our feet, so to speak. And so then there is a need not to be saved all over again, but for whatever sin has attached itself to our life to be washed away and to receive God's forgiveness. 
If we confess our sins, John said, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's talking about this kind of dirty feet cleansing that happens as we walk through the world. So we don't need to be born again every time we sin. We need to be forgiven of that sin. Now Jesus poses a question to them at the end of verse 12. He said, do you know what I have done to you? In other words, what he has done is an action with a message. It was intended to communicate something to them. They have no idea what he has just demonstrated to them. I am not laughing at them. I am laughing at myself. I'm as thick as they are. They don't have the foggiest idea what he has just demonstrated to them. And these are the apostles. Gives all of us hope. And the reason we know that they don't have the slightest idea what it is that he's trying to teach them is there is no interruption of the red between verse 12 and verse 13. They never answer his question. How long Jesus allows the situation to remain just this silence before he finally broke the silence by explaining it to him, we don't know. All we know is they'd be sitting silently to this day unless Jesus broke that silence. So they didn't have the slightest idea. And so Jesus answered them in verses 13 through 16 and essentially he had just communicated to them visually that the highest position in the kingdom of God is the position of a servant. Now, obviously, this is super important to Jesus. So I want us to notice several lessons in this subject of, of servanthood and greatness as he describes it and teaches it here in this passage. I want to hear his heart on this every time he speaks on it in the Word. I want to glean from him. The first thing that we learn here is that the way to achieve greatness as a child of God is by becoming a servant to others. That's how you become great. I think that very often, and it plagues, I wouldn't say it's a dominant influence, but it might be. It's certainly a considerable influence in the body of Christ. And the great misconception that Christians can have in terms of being influential for God in this world, is that somehow we have to attain to and gain access to the great power positions in the world. That we need to first become great by whatever means is required to become great, no matter how many people we have to step on, no matter how many people we have to walk over, no matter how unchristlike we have to be to become great or to attain to this great position, but that the end justifies the means that as long as you reach that position of greatness, we convince ourselves that once we do, that we will then use the, the greatness of that position and the influence of that position now for 
the things of God as an influence for the advancement of the kingdom. It never happens. Because anyone who attains to greatness in terms of how the world views greatness, by achieving it by unchristlike means, by stabbing people in the back, using people, jumping over people, deceiving people, all this time of thing to reach a position of greatness, if that person thinks that they can turn that character on and off and suddenly once they are there, disavow all of those actions and now they're going to be a Christ-minded and a Christ-like person, they're kidding themselves. It'll never happen. Greatness. Greatness of influence, greatness of authority in the body of Christ and for the body of Christ is only entrusted to the servant, to the slave, because it is only someone who becomes great by being a slave or a servant to anyone and everyone that can then handle Greatness in a spiritual way once it comes to them. Otherwise, greatness or influence in the body of Christ is unsafe in every other kind of person. What is a servant? My favorite definition of a servant or a slave is one who lives to make life better for another person. That's what a slave is. That's what a servant is. And so very simply, when someone looks and says, well, what is a servant? And where and how do I begin to be a servant? It's very simply where a person establishes a lifestyle by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit where any situation that we walk into or any person that we meet, we ask ourselves, what can I do to make things better in this circumstance? What can I do to make life better for this person that I'm involved with right now? And usually it's very, very obvious how to make life better for them in that situation. And then it's a matter of simply doing it. It can be as simple as helping someone who, after dinner, to clean off the table and uh, to clean up the kitchen after the meal. It can be someone who, whatever their degrees or whatever their achievements or whatever their titles in life, it doesn't matter. They look at someone who is carrying too many bags of groceries or a box that's too big for them, and they drop everything that they're involved in to open a door to help them with that load. It can mean a ride for someone to the doctor's office, in a marriage, looking at my spouse on a daily basis and saying, what can I do to make life better for this person? Children toward parents. And all this, it can carry into the workplace, the school place, toward our neighbors, toward our personal relationships with other people, and into the church in, in the body of Christ, where we just look and everywhere we go, that is our thinking. I am a servant. This is the way to be great and to be like Christ. What can I do to make this circumstance better? And what can I do to make life better for this person? Now, in this vein, notice in verse 14 that Jesus is not calling us to wash His feet. That's a different sermon. 
Jesus didn't take a basin of water and a towel and sit down and wash his own feet. (laughs) If the object lesson of this whole thing, if that was the object lesson of it, the line would form. All of us would love to wash Jesus' feet. The disciples would have readily formed a line to wash Jesus' feet. Everybody wants to wash Jesus' feet. The problem is, is washing the feet of other disciples. And, and you know what the problem with that is? <laughs> Dirty feet. Sometimes you hear people say, you know, concerning the body of Christ, say, oh, I, I love God, but His people, that's another story. <laughs> it's easy to love God. It's not always easy to love our fellow disciples. And one of the things that this whole thing that Jesus tells me, speaks here, that it it tells me, is that it does tell me that we're going to need to wash one another's feet as Christians. And that tells me that we're going to have dirty feet at times. We're going to be less than perfect as Christians. We're going to be sinners as Christians. The Bible teaches that none of us needs to sin as a Christian. The power of the Holy Spirit and the direction of His Word. But the Bible teaches just as surely that we all do sin and we won't be perfect until we go to heaven. If you sit here today and you are not a Christian and you have been years from coming to a Christian church and you have rejected Christianity and God and Jesus and the Bible because you once knew a Christian or a thousand Christians that were less than perfect, what are you, crazy? God never said that His people would be perfect this side of heaven. You're wasting too much time. You need to come to conclusions about Jesus and the God of the Bible and the Bible itself and Christianity on the basis of the Bible and Jesus and the God of the Bible. The Bible never says that a single Christian is going to be perfect. They're going to fail. They're going to let us down, and I'm going to let you down, and there's going to be disappointment. So if the expectation is perfection, we are set up for our own discouragement on it. One way that we wash one another's feet in the body of Christ is to just come along a fellow Christian who has sinned and they become defiled by the world as a result. They don't need to get saved again. They are saved. And then just to help them address that sin in the light of God's Word. To sit down with them and say, can I sit down and talk with you just a little bit? And to remind them of the importance of the confession of our sin to God. The importance of repentance, turning from our sin. The importance of looking and saying, what can we learn here? What do we have to change? You have to change in your life so that you don't find yourself continually in this place. Let me talk to you about the power of the Holy Spirit and the baptism of the Holy Spirit to live a Christ-like life. Let me tell you about the greatness of the forgiveness of sin that is found in Christ toward even His children. Again, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. And when a person sits down and begins to take what the Word of God has to say about this defilement in another person's life, we are washing them with the Word of God. Paul described it in writing in Ephesians chapter 5. 
the same kind of washing words. He said, husband, love your wives. And then he moves to Christ in the church. He says, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. There is a cleansing that occurs through the application of the word of God in our lives. I like what Gail Irwin, I heard him speak on this passage many, many years ago. And he was talking about what not to do here. And that is, as Christians, when we come across someone with dirty feet, we don't start to dance around them and, and cry out, You've got dirty feet! You've got dirty feet! Or, we don't take a fire hydrant hose and then try to wash their feet with it. Poof! And they fly up against the back wall of the sanctuary because of the pressure. That's not how you, that's not how you wash feet. Again, a foot washing is very close. It's a very personal thing. It's a quiet thing. It's a private, private thing. And that's what Christ calls us uh, to, to do here. Just coming along and saying, hey, can I show you something wonderful from God's Word about where you find yourself this morning? How can I help you in this? And we really need one another in that way. We also learn in verse 15 that Jesus is our example concerning servanthood. In fact, he uses the word example there in verse 15. You ever want to know how to be a help? Sometimes people need help, and, and I don't know, is this too hard? Is this too soft? Is this too much? Is this too little? Or all? The greatest thing we can do is go to the Bible and find a situation where Jesus dealt with that same situation. Look at what he said, what he did, what he didn't say, what he didn't do, and then do that very thing in the situation. Jesus is our example of, of what servanthood uh, looks like. He is the definition uh, of it. I think that one of the most, you think about Jesus here in the passage, the descriptions of him in the passage are amazing. We're told that he had come from God, speaking of his deity, he had come his heavenly origin. He was going to God, speaking of his return to glory. That the Father had given all things into his hands, verse 3. He had absolute power, absolute authority. Verse 13, he refers to himself as teacher. A teacher is someone you believe. Verse 13, he refers to himself as Lord. A Lord is someone that you obey. And this one who has all of this power and all of this authority and all of this all that he has, and he uses all of it to become a, a servant to the disciples. I think that one of the most powerful things, and there's a lot of powerful things to see in life, but one of the most impactful things that a person will ever see in life is to watch someone with great power, great authority, great accomplishment, great position, great reputation, walk into an everyday situation and without any sense of self-consciousness drop all those titles and all those airs and all those things that they could have drop everything and begin to serve 
somebody in a particular situation. Whether to mop something up or to clean something up after them, however messy the situation might be. And I've seen it time and time again where you look at someone who is in that kind of place. God has entrusted greatness to them. And they grab your luggage to carry it and you protest and no protest will get that luggage out of their hands. They won't sit in the front seat from the drive from here to wherever. They'll sit in the back seat. And, 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 and how they'll listen, instead of doing all of the talking, they'll listen to a person just pour their heart out. They've got the way of the world or in responsibility like you can't believe. And they listen to what the person has to, to say. Somebody says, well, let me break in and help here. And they won't hear anything of it. And when you watch that kind of greatness willing to take that kind of position, you can't help but be impacted by it. It's the power of the towel in this passage. You and I will never ever, and the disciples were convinced this was true of them, we will never ever be robbed of a sanctified upward mobility or greatness in the kingdom of God by taking the lowest place that never damages our reputation, never causes the right people to think less of us, and certainly never causes God to think less of us. It's the credential for being able to be entrusted with great influence, willingness to be a servant. I'd like to just say, how thankful I am. And I'm almost done, by the way. Give some of you hope. I would like to say how thankful I am to serve in this church with so many who have this attitude of the Lord. I don't know a single pastor or worship leader. I don't know a single staff member or elder or deacon or usher or greeter or a member of the security team or the medical team here or that works in the parking lot or works in the children's ministry in any capacity. I don't, they may exist, but I don't know them. I don't know a single person in those capacities that we could not turn to and say, could you leave off that thing that you're doing right now and go over here and clean up this mess, whether physical or spiritual or emotional or mental, that they wouldn't immediately drop everything and go and do it and not consider themselves too good to do it and to consider it anything but a joy to do it. And I think about how that must please the Lord. There's a funny thing that happens after we walk with the Lord for a while. And what can happen to us is we begin to become kind of um, selective in our service. Where somebody has walked with the Lord for a number of years and all and we can get spoiled and it's in all of us. And somebody can come along and say, I don't, I've paid my dues. I don't empty garbage cans anymore. I just lead a home fellowship. 
If you don't empty garbage cans anymore, you don't lead a home fellowship. Because <laughs> you can't be entrusted with that authority. You're bigger than your Lord at that point. And it's in us. And the importance of maintaining this attitude. Jesus never felt he was above doing anything that met a need in the lives of his disciples both then and now. And it's only in being like that that we can demonstrate that we don't feel that we are greater than him in, in, in this same area. The importance, and I close with this, I want you to notice one final thing here. Notice the importance of being willing to receive from Jesus. Peter, you're not washing my feet? As long as I live, you are not washing my feet. <laughs> He's completely uncomfortable receiving this service from Jesus. We must never be uncomfortable with any position, high or low, that Jesus is willing to take in our lives in order to serve us and to bless us and to make our life better as a result of it. It can make us uncomfortable how low He's willing to go to do that. But He is a servant. He said He came into the world not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. The Bible says that once we are raptured and we are taken up into heaven and partake of the marriage supper of the Lamb, from Jesus' own mouth He declares that He will serve us at that meal. He is a servant. He loves it. It blesses Him. It is not something that He did a few places in the passage to teach us you know, how to do this here and there in our Christian lives. This is who He is. This is what He is. And so when He comes in to the little or the big mess that we've made or to attend to some very small detail that you wouldn't ask even another person to get involved in, but He jumps in and He fixes that for you. We should never ever feel bad about that or rob Him of the opportunity to serve Him, serve us, because this is who He is. And then finally, that other one was just my first closing. Notice in verse 17, Jesus promised that it results in a totally blessed life. People look at it and say, that's got to be the worst kind of life, the worst drudgery. Listen, you know why it isn't? The reason it isn't is because it's to live like Christ. This is how we were made to live. We're being indoctrinated all day, every day out there. We... All of mankind is, is an experiment of the rest of mankind. The Creator knows this is how we're intended to live in relationship with God. And this is why when we take that lowest place in whatever situation or in another person's life, and we assist that person, and we walk away from that situation that we are walking six inches at least off the ground. And the reason it feels so good, 
And the reason it feels so right is because it is. And it is the Holy Spirit speaking to us afterwards and saying, that feels good, doesn't it? You did what Jesus would have done in that situation. And it's the afterglow of the work of the Holy Spirit through our lives. And there's no feeling like that in life. This is why you see people leaving jobs that are six-figure, seven-figure kind of jobs. It doesn't matter about money. They're looking for meaning. They're looking for purpose. They want to make a difference. They haven't discovered in all of the things that they've accumulated, all the titles that they have, the meaning and the purpose and the fulfillment of life. And Jesus said, it's all found right here. And being this in every relationship in our life, and entering into every circumstance in life with this attitude. Because to do so is to be like Christ. Let's stand together and we'll pray. All right, Lord, we've got the knowing. Now comes the doing. And we just pray for a beautiful coming upon in each of our lives of your Holy Spirit. We ask, Lord, to whatever degree is needed to introduce this into our life or to take us deeper into all of this. Whatever has to come from your Holy Spirit, Lord, to fashion our thinking in this direction, we really want to live this kind of life. We really want to look at people and have our initial question be, how can I make life better for this person? We want that to be how we view each circumstance that you bring us into. And Lord, we can't do it in and of ourselves. We can't huff and puff and blow the house down. So we pray that you, by your Holy Spirit, would give us a supernatural heightened awareness of this in every area of our lives. Take us by the hand, Lord, and walk us out into the beauty of this Christ-likeness. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.